let me open us up in prayer, and then we'll be back to the book of Judges. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we come into your presence this morning, resting on your all-ruling care and mercy of your people. And Father, we pray that you would attend to us as we read your word. We pray, Lord, with a very difficult passage that you might give us understanding, help us to discern how this text speaks to us in particular ways that it might shape and influence the way that we live, the way that we think, how we respond to godly living in a, in a secular world. Draw near to us, O Father in heaven, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, this morning we are in Judges chapter 19. <clears throat> Judges chapter 19, and we have a very long reading of the whole chapter and a little piece of chapter 20, uh, the opening 11 verses. So in our study of Judges, this is the, the passage that nobody wants to read and nobody wants to teach, so I, I gave it to myself. Uh, and I hope that as you read and you're disgusted by the narrative, uh, that you will yet profit from what we consider in it. But let me read the whole thing to you. Judges 19, verse 1. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay. And he remained with him three days, so they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night, and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now the day has waned toward evening. Please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Watch here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys and his concubine was with him. And when they were near Jebus, the day was nearly over. And the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Geba. And he said to his young man, Come, 
and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Geba or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way, and the sun went down on them near Geba, which belongs to Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Geba. And he went in and sat down in the open square. I've been saying Geba, sorry, it's Gibeah. He sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field at evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning at Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going? And where do you come from? And he said to him, We are passing from Bethlehem and Judah to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, from which I come. I went to Bethlehem and Judah, and I am going to the house of the Lord. But no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and for your female servant and the young men and young man with your servants. There is no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed and they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, Behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up early in the morning. And when he opened the doors of the house and went out on to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead. And the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mitzpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword, now the people of Benjamin heard the people of Israel had gone up to Mitzvah, and the people of Israel said, Tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to, to Gibeah, that belongs to Benjamin, 
I and my concubine to spend the night, and the leaders of Gibeah arose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and they violated my concubine, and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel. For they had committed an abomination, outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man, saying, None of us will go to his tent, none of us will return to his house, but now this is what we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, and a hundred of a thousand, and of a thousand ten thousand, to bring provisions for the people, that when they come they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage they, that they have committed in Israel. So all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. Thus far, God's word. Uh, as I mentioned, it's a it's a very depressing section of scripture, uh, outrageous in and of itself, just to read it. And you kind of remember where we are in the book of Judges. Uh, here at the end, in chapter seventeen to twenty-one, we have two tales detailing to us what life is like without a king. The refrain of this section has been, uh, everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes because there's no king in the land. So the document, the book of Judges is probably a pro-king document. But while the fact that an earthly monarch is missing doesn't rule Israel, that shouldn't make us miss the truth of the real problem, the rejection of Yahweh who is the king. In 1 Samuel 8, when Israel will begin clamoring for a king and Samuel doesn't want to do it, the Lord says, they've not rejected you, they've rejected me from being their king. They had already done that by the time we reach 1, king, 1 Samuel chapter 8. So that's what we're seeing here. Now, related to the scene of the rejection of Yahweh, we've, we've noted throughout the book kind of this downward spiral of morality as we've studied the lives of the various judges, where in a sense the heroes aren't heroes. And we continue to see here the depraved descent of God's people in these last two major stories. But it should be noted, and as a detail that's easy to miss, that when we come to the end of the book, the book is actually out of chronological order. How do we know that? Well, in chapter 18, the corrupt Levite who the Danites adopted to be their leader, we read that he was Moses' grandson. So he's close to Moses. And in chapter 20, in our own little section, Phineas, the same priest of Numbers 25 who, who kills people in the act of committing idolatry, the same priest of Joshua 22, who after you know Joshua's at the end of his life and there's an altar set up on the edge of the eastern tribes, and there's a issue, are they really going to serve the Lord? That same priest is still ruling here. What does that mean? It means the descent into pagan behavior after Joshua dies is actually exponential. It doesn't take long when God is not known. And that was how Judges 2 introduced. After Joshua and the men with him, there arose a generation that did not know the Lord. It's not that they didn't know about him, but they didn't know him personally. And now God's professed people in the course of two generations 
are identical, as it were, in their morality to pagans. And we're seeing just how thorough the corruption is in these final two chapters. We see a, the corruption of the family, Micah's family in the previous story, the corruption of the priesthood with two rotten Levites, Micah first here, and then the one, the story we're getting in this text, and then the corruption of two tribes, the Danites and the Benjaminites. And then chapter 19 will go on to show us we actually have a plummeting of the whole people. Now, Judges 19 is the most horrific section in the whole book. It may be the ghastliest narrative in all of Scripture. But as we read it, it's easy to put this note aside, but it's really the main point. What should shock you is that this is happening among God's people. It's not out there. Like in Sodom, we're shocked by that. But they're pagans. Well, now Sodom is in Israel. And the distinction between God's people and the Canaanites doesn't seem to exist. So Judges is showing this, what we might call the canonization of the people of God. And while it's stomach-churning to read about, it should strike us on our own situation. Judges 19 is often used to draw parallels with American culture and our mess, or the decline of Western society as a whole. But that's not what this text is about. This text is about the shameful state of God's own people. Because again, Sodom is not out there, it's in here. And that's what makes the chapter all the more atrocious. Well, as we get a little glimpse into the evil here, we're going to see two broad things as we have time. Uh, the first will be compromised characters in verses 1 to 10. So again, we, we get the opening line in those days uh, when there was no king in Israel. So we're, what we're about to see is what Israel thinks is a good idea, but not what the Lord is pleased with at all. And the evil comes right at the start. A Levite is sojourning, interestingly, in a place where a Levite was sojourning in the previous story in the hill country of Ephraim. And like the previous Levite, this guy is moving around to get what he wants. He, he takes for himself not a wife, but a concubine in Bethlehem. Now, concubines were treated like property. They're not true companions. They're second-rate wives, if I can put it that way. Uh, not married for love, but for pleasure. And concubines have been present with God's people for a long time now. We can go back and read the stories of Abraham and Jacob. But long-standing practice doesn't excuse the immorality. This is not what the Lord intended, where the two become one flesh. And when there's a departure from what God requires, is it going to surprise you when relational dysfunction is found? Go back and read Genesis. Did you see the relational dysfunction? Would you have wanted to be in Jacob's family? I guarantee you, you wouldn't. Well, this is only going to get worse. But it's the first clue to compromise in the chapter that a man is taking a concubine, and then there's going to be more. Now, we're going to feel sorry for this concubine that she was taken. She probably had no say in this union. She was not loved. But her corruption is also evident. Look at verse 2. The Levite's concubine was unfaithful to him, or 
literally, she played the harlot against him and left him. Now, we're not given the details here. Was he farming her out? Was she running off on her own? It seems that that's what she was doing, but she ends up at her father's house in Bethlehem. So even this lowly woman who will be terribly treated, even she is doing what is right in her own eyes. So Judges 19 will make you ooze with compassion for her, but the mess is ongoing here because of her corruption too. So you should see that. Well, after four months of separation, the Levite arose to go get his concubine. And you're probably wondering, why did he wait four months? Um, Did it take him that long to decide he liked her again? Uh, It says that he was going to go speak kindly. Literally, he would speak to her heart and bring her back. Is he trying to be manipulative, luring her? We don't know. Does he care about the woman? Hard to say that he does, based on what we're going to see as we keep going. He probably just wanted his possession back. And that question lingers as we then meet a third character in the story. The concubine's father, who disgustingly meets the Levite with joy. He prevails upon the Levite to stay with him and enjoy himself. And the interchange between the concubine's father and the Levite becomes almost comical. Some of us have father-in-laws who are glad to see us go. This guy doesn't ever want his son-in-law to leave. And the Levite just can't seem to get away from this man. For five days, he's been pressed to stay, to eat. And this is probably the eating and drinking till you're merry. That can be a, a positive statement of simply wine makes man's heart merry. It doesn't have to be a, a drunkenness notion. But in this context, it probably is. So they're, they're binge drinking, we might say, and he's pressing him to stick around. And then he finally decides on the fifth day, look, I'm leaving and I don't care what time it is. We've got to get out of here. Now, this father's reception of the Levite, it certainly is going to stand in contrast to what we see at Gibeah, right? One man's offering hospitality, over-the-top hospitality, and the other community doesn't offer any at all. But there are other questions, I think, that should make us consider here. Why would the father of this concubine do what he's doing? Well, just consider what's supposed to happen to an adulterous woman, according to the law. And if she played the harlot even more, what are you supposed to do to her? Stone her. So the death penalty. And what about the shame that would come upon your family if your daughter is stoned for her immorality? Perhaps this is a motive as to why the man is showering kindness on the Levite. And it seems like he wants to make this lawless relationship legitimate. The text calls him the father-in-law of the Levite, as though the union's acceptable when it isn't. Of course, the irony of the five-day exchange between the Levite and the concubine's father is the girl never speaks. We're not told of any interaction she has other than first welcoming in the door, and her husband is not talking to her. We don't see her agree to return. So that's interesting. I think what the text is communicating is she is a bargaining chip between these two men. Her father wants to avoid shame. The Levite wants to get back his possession. What does it mean? Self-interest is driving the narrative. There's no concern 
for the law of the Lord. And if we just take stock of the story so far, what do we see? We see that every character has flaws, major flaws. And it's displaying to us the refrain, everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. And again, it's true there's no human king to enforce order and righteousness, but the king that Israel has, the Lord, has been rejected. So we could look at these nameless figures and we could see in a sense that every Levite and every woman and every father or host is infected with the corruption of sin. In fact, I think we're, we're seeing the ripple effect of sin from the garden to here. What was the ripple effect of sin? A declaration of independence from the rule and reign of God. I want to be like God on my terms. I want to control my destiny. I want to call my own shots. I will decide what is good. That's the heartbeat, really, of Eve looking at the tree that God said wasn't good and saying it is good. That is, it was good for food. So it's a misuse of things according to your own design. And the the problem in the narrative then, it's not just a problem of a collection of sins. It's a problem of the power of sin. Sin is dominating. Sin is a posture of rebellion against the Lord and it's everywhere. And Paul reminds us in Romans 3, doesn't he, that all alike, whether Jew or Gentile, are under the power of sin. We all natively are dominated by sin. And it's a temptation of God's people to hear that indictment or to look at this passage and see those terrible people and say, they are lawless libertines with no concern to please the Lord. But the power of sin isn't confined to the people out there. It was our state. And even as those who've been rescued, set free in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have an old man sticking around that we have to constantly put off. See, the text is saying, look at what God's people are capable of doing. We're all compromised characters. Brethren, this is why we need a Savior. We need a Lord who will come and rescue us from ourselves from adopting our own standards, from crafting our own ethics. Furthermore, something to see here, the the subjectivism which is ruling the text. Every man is making his own rules. That isn't just a problem with pagans. It's a problem with us. Are we resisting the powerful temptation to go our own way, to decide how it will be for ourselves rather than being ruled by the Word of God? Have we laid down definitively, and do we continue to lay down this pull to follow our own heart? Do we give our allegiance to Christ as King? Now, something really interesting about the story, the whole story, did you notice that no, we know no one's name? No one's name is mentioned. That's really bizarre. I, I can't even think of another passage where we have no one's name. That has to be significant. We have an unspecified Levite. We have a concubine and her father. And later we meet an old man from Ephraim and worthless fellows. What's the point? Well, 
to have a name in Scripture is to have an identity, to have significance, to have value as an image bearer of God. And to be without a name dehumanizes the individual. It's like being a number to an insurance company or being a certain demographic in some type of political focus survey. The value of the individual soul is lost when you think like that. The irony, both in Judges 19 and in the world in which we live, is we live in a society that exalts the individual, that makes man the measure of all things because everyone is doing what is right in his own eyes. But when you do that, actually the individual counts for nothing. This is why in our culture, and even among some in the professing church, people don't blink at abortion or euthanasia or some forms of abuse or exploitation because you're just a pawn in my desire for pleasure. See, living by your own rules destroys the dignity of every man where there are no standards except the standard of your power to do what you want. No one matters. And again, it shows us why we need a Savior who came not for a nameless mass. Right? Our names are inscribed on the palms of His hands. He knows us by name. That's an incredible truth. Such a contrast to what we're seeing here. So compromised characters. Secondly, see with me, incredible crimes. So the Levite's delay in leaving his father-in-law now has some practical consequences. He can't make it home before darkness comes. So his retinue reaches Jebus, which is Jerusalem, as it would later be known. Uh, and Jebus is controlled by the Jebusites. So what's he supposed to do now? Well, his servant suggests stopping in the city. But he says, no way, we're not going to do that. This is not among the children of Israel, which is a critique, by the way, just of Israel, because Jebus is in the allotted territory that belongs to the Benjaminites. And all the way back in Judges 1, we read the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. That was sin. And now they're living side by side with the wicked. It shouldn't be. But Israel has grown accustomed to disobeying. They have no zeal. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> no zeal to do what is pleasing in the sight of God. And the Canaanites are viewed as a threat, but they don't want to do anything about it. <clears throat> so the Levite doesn't want to stay in the city of foreigners. Um, he doesn't believe they'll be safe. He doesn't think they'll get the hospitality they need, so they move on about three miles to Gibeah. However, while they arrive in friendly territory, it doesn't seem so friendly, they sit down in the town square. Verse 15, no one takes them into a house to spend the night. And that tells us all is not well in this city. Things seem to work out when an old man comes by, but that man isn't even from Benjamin. He's from the hill country of Ephraim, like the Levite. So he's a foreigner, a stranger, sojourning in this area. Now, the old man... Um, to this old man, the Levite makes known his needs, though he is a spin doctor. He says that I'm going to the house of the Lord. 
which he's not doing. He also says, I have everything I need, straw for my animals, food, drink for the people, all I need is a bed. When he gets to the guy's house, the, the guy gives feed to his animals. So you're still wondering, is he just making it sound better than it is? What's really going on? And he's going to lie more later. So we don't trust anything he's saying. Now again, the fact that no Benjaminite assists here tells us that there's no sense of community in Israel. Every man's doing what's right in his own eyes. Nobody has a sense of unity and obligation towards one another. It's every man for himself. But this fellow clansman, he takes in the Levite, he insists, don't spend the night in the square, which is an ominous comment, because Gibeah is a walled city. It should be safe from outsiders. The problem is the threat is from within. And we see just how horrible that problem is when they're in the middle of their dinner and they're interrupted by violent and continual beating on the door. What's going on here? Well, verse 22, Behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house. The description of these men as worthless fellows is telling. That phrase literally is sons of Belial. It's used 16 times in Scripture of different men, but always men of rotten character. Murderers, rapists, drunks, and chiefly idolaters. In fact, Paul will use that language in 2 Corinthians 6 when he's talking about don't be unequally yoked, which by the way has far more implication than just not getting married to a non-believer. But he says, 2 Corinthians 6.15, what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what partnership or what portion does a believer have with an unbeliever? So by identifying these people as sons of Belial, the author might as well have called them sons of the devil. They are unbelievers in the midst of the people of God. And what do they want? Well, they make it known. Verse 22, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. To know is a euphemism here. It's not that these men wanted to have a conversation. Same language is used in Genesis 19. They wanted to engage in the abominable act of homosexuality. However, I don't think that this was first and foremost about sexual pleasure. It was about shaming this man to display who's really in charge. And homosexuality is associated with shame. So that, that's, I think, significant. And if you go back and study Genesis 19, those same power dynamics are operating. They're about to show who runs the show in the town. But of course, the language does throw us immediately back to Judges 19, and the parallelism, the echoes, the quotes are very deliberate. The reader immediately recognizes Sodom shouldn't be in Israel, but it is. The grotesque Canaanite practices, all manner of sexual morality are found among God's people. And as Paul shows us in Romans 1, what happens when the people exchange the truth of God for the lie? That's right. When idolatry becomes rampant, when the failure to acknowledge God persists in a pursuit of darkness, there's a given over to a darkened mind and a debased conduct to doing what is contrary to nature, homosexual practice. 
Romans 1 spells it out. If you give glory, the, the glory that belongs to the imperishable God to perishing creatures, God will give you over to sin. He'll let you reap the folly of your own destructive behavior. But that isn't just a problem in the world. It's a problem in the church. Multitudes of churches have rejected God's rule in His Word. They've denigrated the glory of Christ. They've corrupted the worship of God. And they've erected their own judge over their own heart as judge over God's standard. Subjectivism, ruling the church. I don't really like that the Bible says that. No, this is what we're going to do. Oh, you know, we, we can ignore that law. This is what we think. We're, we're more enlightened than those people were. This is what we're going to do. Well, is it any surprise then that theological liberalism, what is in fact worshiping a God of your own making, a God with no justice, no truth, no holiness, that it should lead to defiled conduct, to widespread rotten ethics, including homosexual relationships. If you start with the premise, I like to think that God is, then a new and perverse ethic will follow. And this is why Paul is warning us, Romans 12, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, literally of this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to the idolatrous thought patterns of the world where we live. You're, you're in the world, but you're not of it. Don't be conformed to its exaltation of self or its toleration of sin. You need to be transformed by contact with the Word of God and have every thought taken captive and made obedient to Jesus Christ. Brethren, are we being transformed? I've been a pastor long enough to know, not to be naive about this, I've been a pastor long enough to watch people who profess Christ for a long time abandoning the Word to pursue their own lusts. I have seen it way too many times to count. I've seen it among preachers multiple times. It breaks my heart. What is the means God has given to not go that way? It's simple but it has to be used with persistence. Transformed by the renewing of your mind. What is the thing that renews your mind? It's the Word of God. And you have to stay in it. You have to have it wash over you. Publicly proclaimed. You need more of it, not less of it. Well, back to the old man's house. Like Lot, the master of the house, makes an appeal to the rabble. He says, verse 23, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. He calls them to turn and repent, but then he does something detestable. He says, verse 24, Behold, <clears throat> here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now. Violate them. And literally, do to them the good in your eyes. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. He seeks to spare his guest and conceives of throwing the women to the dogs, one of whom is his guest. 
Why is that? Well, probably like the Levite, he sees women as property, as less value than men. Does he think homosexual rage is unacceptable, but rape is acceptable? The old man's solution is to exchange one wickedness for another wickedness. And do you see, though he took them into his home, here's another example of everyone doing what is right in his own eyes. Well, the old man's suggestion isn't accepted, so in a moment of desperation, the Levite grabs his concubine and made her go out to them, the ESV reads. It's a really tame translation. He threw her out like tossing a piece of meat to the wolves. And then three graphic verbs explain what happened. Verse 25, And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning, and as the dawn began to break, they let her go, or... They discarded her. They threw her away. The scene is chilling. Here's a Levite. He, he's supposed to be a teacher in Israel. He, he's supposed to be a model of God's character. And he willingly gives up this woman that he took to himself, a woman he should be protecting to save his own skin. Isn't it exactly the opposite of what Jesus does? Jesus gives himself to the violent rabble. Jesus willingly goes out to the sons of the devil among God's people, throws himself to the dogs where he'll be spit on, mocked, beaten, and then crucified. That is unfathomable love. And Jesus did it for whom? For the ungodly. For those who are not righteous. This is the model of what our love should be, of love from husband to wife, but love of the people of God generally. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, sacrificially. Is that what we're doing? Or are we concerned to just protect ourselves? Well, maybe even more chilling than the Levite's cowardly act is his callous heart. The following morning, morning appears. The woman was down at the door. She was hanging on to the threshold. Um, and then he comes out. No, don't miss the title for him here. He's called her master. He's treated her like an animal. And now he's behaving in that way. Her master rose up in the morning. Don't rust past that. She was brutalized all night. And he went to bed. <clears throat> Do you know another person who sleeps in the middle of a sin? Jonah. Yeah, sometimes sleeplessness can be a problem of a troubled conscience. Sometimes you can be so hardening your sin, it didn't bother you a lick to go to bed. He has no remorse. He wants to just move on like the next thing to do in the day. He opens the door. Behold, there was his concubine laying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he says, get up, let us be going. Her silence is deafening. There was no answer. The narrator doesn't tell us if she's unconscious or dead. And he doesn't answer that question, which really bothers us when he loads her on his animal, goes home and pulls out the knife to cut her into 12 pieces. I don't know. It's probable that she was already dead, but we don't know. 
So more moral outrage comes. And then he sends her body parts around throughout Israel, probably with a messenger to explain what had happened. And we hear that such a thing had never happened or been seen in Israel. Um, And they're talking, of course, about the sin of the Gibeonites as well. Years later, Hosea will allude, Hosea 9.9, to the days of Gibeah to express the depth of corruption among God's people. But the author is not whitewashing the Levite's sin. The Gibeonites' crime is revolting, but this man's behavior is also reprehensible. And that's on display again when they have an assembly. They assemble as one man. We're told that three times at the beginning of chapter 20. And he lays out the details, but notice what he didn't say. His own role in the matter. Again, we're seeing the people of God have no concern for the truth of God. What a depressing situation it is. Now, it's easy in our text as we kind of wrap up here to be outraged at the crime of Gibeah and then to excuse our own sin. You may recoil and think such sins as in my heart or among us don't rise to the scandal that's in this text. Well, that could be true. Maybe the heinousness of our sin is not is what we see here. But remember where all that sin originates. It's in the heart. Jesus tells the disciples, who I think are already converted, it's out of the heart that come all manner of evil things. The evil thoughts, various levels of sexual morality, corrupt speech, idolatry, and so forth. We have to be on guard. You know, Paul reminds us in 2 Timothy 3 that in the last days, he tells Timothy, he'll be characterized by people like this who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, who have a form or an appearance of godliness but deny its power. They appear to be godly. I think Paul is definitely talking about people in the context of the church. They appear to be godly and deny that power. This text is written for our instruction. Well, you have to ask yourself, not is that somebody over there, is this me? Where's my heart before the Lord? And then finally, as we consider the sickening passage, maybe a a large question is, is God paying attention? How could this happen? Don't we feel that way in our own situation as we look upon the moral degradation of society and of the corruption in the church? Well, remember, this text is a glimpse into life during the Judges period. And I told you at the start, what you're reading at the end of Judges is actually chronologically probably closer to the beginning of Judges. What what does that mean? What are the implications of that? Well, this same period where it seems God isn't paying attention is the period where God is raising up saviors, judges, to rescue His people. Why is He doing that? Clearly not because these people are worth saving. He's doing it because He doesn't forget His promise. His covenant endures forever. It will never be annulled. We have a more assurance of that because all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And brethren, when you feel as though God isn't paying attention, 
What do you hang on to? The gift of the Son in the cross and the resurrection, but also the promise of Jesus. Lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, for I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The fury of hell and all its pervasive working of sin will never overcome the church. What hope we have. I think the author in the construction of the book of Judges is actually leading us to that truth by telling us this is when no one did what was right or everyone did what was right in his own eyes with no king, but we're going to get a king. Of course, we're going to discover that every king is going to fail us. But there's a promise of a king who won't. A forever king. And all of our hopes are in him and the redemption he brings. Well, there are lots of other avenues of thought we we could explore in various connections. But I'll leave us on, on a high note. That God looks upon the degradation of his own people and he still acts with mercy. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come into your presence sobered by the ugliness of sin and how it can be present among your own people. Lord, we pray for our own hearts that you would guard us against abominable sins, that you would guard us against the mindset that leads to this kind of corruption by running in our own direction rather than listening to your law. Lord, would you take your word and shape us by it And would you make us to be students of the word, feeding upon it regularly, that we would be conformed to its every principle. Help us to hide it in our heart, that we might not sin against you. For we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.